Hi everyone, and welcome to the Worldonomics podcast, brought to you by the UQES diversity team. I'm Marty. I'm Bronwyn. I'm Sharada. And I'm Jo. And each week we bring in a new guest to talk about the issues that matter. UQES would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is taking place today. We acknowledge the country as both the Turbal and Jagara nations. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and future. Hi everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of Career Pathway Series from the Wardenomics podcast. Today we have the pleasure to interview one of the hosts of the podcast, Comedian versus Economist, who also studied economics at UQ and was an UQES officer. Thomas Kelly, welcome to the Worldonomics podcast. Great, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah, so we've got a bit of a fun question um, before we get started. Um, I think it's very fitting for what's going on at the moment. So if you could compete in any Olympic event, what would you compete in and why? I think gymnastics because those guys are just so cut. They, they just look amazing. <laughs> I actually did gymnastics when I was a kid but never got to that level of expertise. But I think there's like a particular mindset that like there's a steel mind that's required to be a gymnast. And I'd kind of love to know what that is. I think my mind's a bit soft and flabby. Um, <laughs> but I'd, love, I'd love to know what the discipline's like to, to be an Olympic gymnast. I'd love to live in those shoes for a day. Yeah, that's a good answer. <laughs> that, would be, that would be mine as well. Yeah. Okay, okay. So did you just want to briefly introduce yourself for everyone listening? Yeah, great. So yeah, my name's Thomas, currently hosting the podcast Comedian versus Economist with my brother. So I'm the economics half of that unit. My brother is a stand-up comedian. And we sort of got into that when COVID hit, he was calling me up with a bunch of questions. He's like, what should I do with my super? What should I bail on the markets? What should I fix my mortgage rate? All these sort of questions. And we're talking it through and he's like, wow, this is really interesting. I think a lot of people would a lot of my mates would like to know this. And I was like, well, we, re- we could record it if you like. And I said, that, well, that's a podcast. I went, oh, yeah, that is a podcast. And so we, we started a podcast called Minimum Chips. And we did six episodes and then got picked up by the Equity Mates guys. So Equity Mates Media have a bunch of great uh, investing podcasts, uh, very focused on the markets, on stocks. And they kind of like what we were doing. We're sort of bringing a macro flavor there. They're much more focused on particular stocks, but we, we sort of just bring a, a look influences and yeah i've been doing that for a bit i studied at uq uh back in studied my studies there in 1995 um did an economics and arts degree with a japanese language degree and did my honors there and graduated in 2001 and then went worked to work at the rba as an economist so i spent six years there at the rba and then and then went on a colourful journey from there to here. So we're like 15 years. I don't know if we want to catch up on all of that, but that's the basics in, t- in terms of economics. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I guess we'll just start like at the beginning of that journey then. So what initially motivated you to study economics? It was a funny story, actually. I was in year 11 and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought I was maybe going to go into medicine. I thought I'll just keep my options open and I'll do all the physics, chemistry, biology, mass one, mass two, and all of this. And I rocked up to my new school in year 11 and my career counselor sort of, you had to check off to make sure you're hitting all the requirements. And my career counselor went like, whoa, this is a, this is a pretty heavy workload. You've cut cut it out for yourself here and I was like oh is it and he's like yeah you back back one of those off why don't you drop chemistry and do PE and I I love sports I was like okay great so I did that and then turns out 
that this guy was the PE teacher and then I was in his class. So he's kind of boosting his own numbers. But if you did chemistry, if you didn't do chemistry one, you couldn't do chemistry two and then you couldn't do uh, year 12. And so that just that one decision sort of ruled out medicine. Not that I was really that into it. And then I was like, oh, so well now what am I going to do? And my mum, my mate's mum was teaching economics at high school. And so I picked it up and I just really loved it. I just really loved the the logic of it. I really enjoyed tracking the the influences of, of one thing into another, looking at that systems level view of the economy and what's going on. It had a real relevance. We're talking about things I'm hearing about in the news and things that were right there in my face. And yeah, so I sort of fell in love with it there. And, and that's sort of how I got into economics. And that's what sort of inspired me to pick it up at uni. So when you went into uni and started studying economics, did you have any idea of where you wanted to end up? Like, did you structure your degree in any way for a specific job or did you just kind of find yourself doing what you felt? I was really just following my nose. And I I think what I liked about economics is that it felt like it, that I could leverage it into a number of different fields. It felt like it just a good strategic move when I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I could go into the public sector. It seemed to have a lot of value there. Um, I could go into sort of business, those sort of fields. There was a focus on numeracy, which I knew was valuable. And I think a lot of organizations, you know, value that. It felt like it was just going to give me options. And I think that's what I was valuing at the time. And then through that, then I just sort of followed my interests and with the sort of course content I picked up. But we didn't have a lot of flexibility, but I really love the sort of philosophy of economics kind of stuff that we were able to do. And I did my honors in game theory, which was a lot of fun. So I don't know if there's, there's much of that going on there now, but yeah, that was pretty cool. So I think the thing I realized once I got out and started working at the RBA was that a lot of what you're doing is really just sort of setting the frameworks of knowledge rather than knowledge itself. And a lot of the, you know, I felt like we got a lot of on the job training at the RBA and that really set you up to be a macroeconomist in the, in the public sector. And, and that's where a lot of the work was done in those first years. And so, yeah, I think I really valued the degree because it just set you up for, with a, you know, gave you a lot of options. So you mentioned a few times that like a degree in economics and Japanese in your case sort of sets you up with options. How did you end up at the RBA and moving on from the RBA, did you sort of always see yourself doing that at some point or was it like four or five years in and then you're like, maybe I should move on to something else? Or was it like, I need to get this work experience, but I know that at some point I'm going to move on to do my own thing in the world. Yeah. The year before I graduated, I did a summer internship at Bankers Trust, which I don't think they exist anymore. They got bought out by Deutsche Bank. They're an investment bank. And I ended up on the trading floor uh, in the foreign exchange unit. And I was there for three months. And in that time, someone retired at the age of 25 because they developed chronic asthma. And they developed it in three or four months at working on the trading floor. And it was just the pressure had got to them. And the guys, they were saying like, yeah, that, that happens. Some people can't handle the pressure. And I was like, okay, wow, that, that really isn't for me. Like I'm not going to get into a career that's going to, you know, savage my body like that. Like that's, that's not really what I'm up for. And so when I was at the end of my degree, I got offered three jobs. One was with a management consultancy firm called Bain, if you know those guys. And the work sounded really interesting, but I but also knew that the hours were like, you know, 80 hour weeks were standard and you're all over the place. And 
I just didn't feel like that was worth it. That wasn't sort of what, what I wanted from life. I, I had other interests that I wanted to explore. Like I wanted that life balance. Like I've always valued that. And so I felt like I needed something that gave me some time for interests outside of that. And then the other two jobs were with one was with the RBA and the other was the Productivity Commission in Canberra. And at the time I didn't really know, didn't have much to base that on. And then kind of in the end just went with the RBA because it was sexier that I could, you know, reading the AFR, it was, in, you know, there's always an article about the RBA in the paper and it does, it, it controls the price of money and that's sort of like the key oil in the capitalist system. So it's controlling the price. So it really has a, a big influence on things. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. That sounds like a, a good place to be on it. I want to go see, check that out and see what's going on there. And then when I got there, it, yeah, it was great. And, and it's a big learning curve. You get trained in the sort of things that they're looking for. It, it's not, I'm not naturally suited to that kind of work. I, I realized. So I loved, I love the big picture, the big picture thinking. I love the philosophy of economics. I love the sort of broad policy direction, all kind of stuff with the RBA. It's very slow and meticulous and, and looking, getting right down into granular levels of data and, and getting a really clear picture of things and really taking your time and, you know, being absolutely certain there's no mistakes. And it's just, that's just not sort of how I'm, I'm cut. Um, and so that's, that was a good learning curve and that was a good lesson. And so from there, I stuck it out probably a few more years than I should have in hindsight, but I, you kind of keep getting bumped around every six months. So I started on the labor desk. And so in the economics group, they, they sort of break down the economy into all of its component parts. So there, I was in the prices, wages and labor section. And then in, in each section, there's a desk. And so I, I started as a graduate on the labor desk um, and so I'm looking at the labor market and all the labor data. And then I did that for like, I think six or nine months. And then I went over to wages. And then from there, I went over to the international economy section and did Japan and China. And then from there, I went into the banking section and did domestic banks. And each time you move, there's a whole, you get this whole window into the economy and there's all this stuff. It's like, wow, I had no idea that there's this much going on and this much level of detail. And it's all really useful and interesting, all this information and so I kept sort of, I think, sticking it out and then eventually got into the group that was uh, organizing the G20 meetings back in 2006, I think it was, Australia's host year then, part of the secretary. And that was really interesting as well. That was super interesting. So yeah, it, it, I stuck around a lot because it just kept giving me these great learning opportunities, even though I think, you know, I'd probably already realized pretty early on that I didn't have a long-term career there. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. You mentioned that even after your, your degree and obviously doing well in your degree to get offers at places like Bain that in your different departments within the RBA, you're learn, still learning so much. I find that really cool. I wish I'd sort of had that sort of explained to me at university that really what I was learning is kind of how to think. I think it, like if you can come away, one of my professors said it actually like saying the only thing we're studying is philosophy. Like it's really like you're learning how to think and what you think about that comes afterwards in your career and economics is a way of thinking of the world. It's kind of like a language. You have all these component parts and you understand how they fit together and what influences what, but to th sort of think logically and to be able to think in numbers, that's sort of the real value of it. And then what you then apply that to is kind of almost neither here nor there, but it's that, that learning how to think, and which is why I think university is such an amazing time because you just, you, your job is just to learn how to think. Yeah, absolutely. 
for a lot of our listeners who are obviously uni students and students who are graduating soon and potentially getting into jobs like in the RBA, what would be like a typical day at work? I know it was some time ago, but what would be mm. a typical day at work at a place like the RBA? Yeah, it is probably going back a bit now. Like I wonder how much it has changed. But I think typically we would monitor the releases coming out. So you have the release schedules, the ABS is publishing particular releases like the labor force survey or uh, wage price index or something like that. So you, you've got that on your calendar and you're like, okay, I'm getting ready for that. So when that data drops, um, there's a lot of activity. It's getting picked up in the, in the, in the financial papers, the investment banks are writing about it. So you're trying to come up with an angle for the executive at the RBA, sort of the, the governors and the assistant governors and everyone reading it. You're trying to come up with some kind of angle on the data that they're not seeing already in the, in the financial papers. So you've, you've kind of got like when the data drops, typically like at 1130, you pull the data down, you get the spreadsheets and you go through it and then you've got to kind of write a report. So you're going to have to have this report almost ready to go and you have to be anticipating the trends and knowing what to look for. So like with labor force, so you've had three months in a row of really weak full-time growth. So that's a story. Does that continue this month? Does it not? So you kind of, they're anticipating trying to get ready for this. And I think probably the economics units at the, at the banks would do this as well. The investment banks and retail banks, they, they need, you're trying to get ahead of the news cycle almost. And so you sort of need to know the trends. You need to know the stories. You need to know what's important. And then when it, when it drops then you got to pull it in and trying to work with it really quickly and see if the stories you're anticipating are there or they're not, and then writing it up and doing the charts and sharing around. So that's sort of one part of the job. And the other part is like then trying to get into like breaking down the data and trying to come up with stories to help build a, a better understanding. So maybe there's stuff going on in the state level data. So that three months in a row of, of weak full-time growth, you might break that down and go, oh, look, it's all in New South Wales. And isn't that interesting? So then you kind of share it or you might like, oh, look, it's all in the construction industry. So there's different ways of breaking that down. And then so you're just there trying to feed up knowledge through the layers of the RBA to eventually to the board and to the governor so they can make that one decision about interest rates. They're just like these really hungry beasts at the top of the tree, just pulling up all this knowledge and it all gets shared around. So everyone, like if you write the labor force report, it goes out to everyone in the economics group and they all get to read it and everyone gets to reflect. And you, there's an expectation that you're tracking the whole economy at the same time. So you've got your own picture of the economy and how it's working. Yeah. And then it goes up. That was my experience in the early days at the RBA. Cool. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. You've worked as a tutor and research assistant too. Have you thought about pursuing an academic career? I, I did think about it for a while. I think, again, it was probably a bit slow for how I'm cut. Like, I'm kind of a more of a get in, get out kind of guy. I like skimming across the top. I like having a, a broad view. I like how the big, broad themes connect. I found sort of that my exposure to the research, it felt like I don't, I just couldn't see myself holding one area of focus for 12 months at a time to do one report or build a whole career around one niche area of something. I've got a lot of respect for people who can do that, but I think it's, it's just not me. Yeah. I have thought about it, but no, I, don't, I just don't think it's for me. No, that makes sense. And after the RBA, I believe you start traveling, right? Would you mind sharing a little bit about your experiences? Yeah. After the RBA, well, towards the end there, I, I had a health scare that put me in hospital for three days. 
and and I, I just had this I did had no idea what was going on I was in hospital hooked up to a bunch of machines and I was just like I just had this one thought coming back like if this is the end of my life I'm going to be so disappointed that I didn't get out and do all this stuff that I wanted to do because it all and working with the RBA was cool and it was interesting but it, like it wasn't really my passion I didn't really fit in there super well and I was hungry for all these other experiences and that always just been on the back burner because I'd always been working full time and that's consuming so much of my energy. And I just had this feeling like, wow, life is, is really short. I've just got to get out there and, you know, like I could spend the rest of my life at the RBA just kicking along and moving through life like that. And I just thought, I just can't do that. I've got to take my shot now. Who knows what's going to happen? So I, qu- I quit the RBA. Then I joined a cabaret troupe. They're based in Newcastle. We do sort of uh, performance and cabaret kind of stuff that I had a passion for that was sort of one of my side interests so I, I joined a cabaret troupe and we toured around for a while and then fell in love with Sufi poetry so I've always been in a bit of a poetry nut so I fell in love with Sufi poetry and Rumi in particular if you know that character and so I was like oh, I've got to, I want to find out what it's about so then I went to, to Turkey and lived in Istanbul for three years living with a Sufi community there and really just sort of following my nose through that time. I had sort of saved up a bit of money, but sort of did odd jobs here and there, picked up a couple of shifts at Sydney Uni, uh, tutoring political economy and worked at a cafe for a bit, things like this. So yeah, just sort of followed my nose for a while and yeah, wasn't particularly career focused through that stage, but I had a great time. Sure. Like, I, <laughs> would you mind sharing a bit more about how it was your experience with the Sufi community? Oh, that's a big question. That's a big question. It's amazing. It's quite hard to understand from a sort of Western cultural perspective. Like one, you're living in Turkish culture, so that has a particular flavor. Can be like, I quite love it. It's very staunch. It can be really, it's very strong. Um, And so that sort of comes into the spiritual practices as well. That's a very staunch and disciplined and regimented spiritual practice. But it's also very soft and loving and a real celebration of beauty. I think it's what I love, why I'm sort of more attracted to Sufism than, say, some of the Buddhism. Like, it's this real celebration of life and the, the blossoming color of life. And so I really loved those two in combination, like a, a strong regimented discipline combined with a love of beauty as a spiritual practice that I really loved. Oh, that's fantastic. It's super interesting. I'm actually interested in the cabaret troupe. How did you <laughs> how did you get into that? I was running a bunch of poetry and spoken word nights in Sydney on the side. Like if I didn't do economics, I would have done literature and poetry at university. That would have been my thing. But I kind of always knew that like it's a career dead end probably. Like I don't, you know, like I want to feel like I, I needed to set myself up in the world. And so I was running sort of spoken word and, and these open mic nights and, and developing my own sort of material and then fell in with this crew who had a couple of gigs lined up right at these sort of big music festivals. And so they were doing a, a auditions and I said, oh, I've got these poems, which are kind of like these rousing inflammatory speeches based on some of the Sufi stuff I was reading at the time. And they kind of dug it. So I became sort of like the poet MC of this troupe for a while. That's so cool. <laughs> That's such a random thing to like add to your career. I love that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I believe you were ghostwriting while you were traveling with part of the work you were doing. Uh, how does that work? How was it working away from Australia? How did that help you? Yeah. So when I was in, in Istanbul, I sort of 
set myself up there and yes I stayed three years so I needed to sort of find a way to support myself and I started teaching English to business people because I had a business background which was super interesting as well so I'd go around to like the the CEO of Marvi Jeans who produces jeans for all the big jeans labels out of Turkey and I'd sit down and just chat with him in English and that, that was my gig so but I started to learn about him and his lifestyle and and his background so it was super fascinating but it was also a lot of hard work and required sort of busing all over Istanbul which is a huge city but it was about the time the internet was kicking off I mean like the online work was becoming a thing so I got him onto a clearinghouse called Upwork I don't know if you heard that one upwork.com but basically people go on their post jobs that they need doing and then you can apply and say hey I've got these skills I can do that job and then I, I noticed that there was a lot of jobs there for uh, riders with a finance background who could sort of speak like they knew the business world and that, that that's actually a really valuable skill and it's quite hard to teach that it's I mean, actually, when I left the RBA, I, I did. I interviewed at the AFR. Um, they they were doing a call out for jobs, and I got offered a job at the AFR. And their, their philosophy, I was talking to the editor, was that it's much easier to train someone with an economics background how to write than it is to train a writer how to think like an economist. And so that's really interesting. And so I've I found that that's that's been true as well. Like with with the ghost writing and the writing I've done online, is that just having that ability to talk in that lexicon to talk like a business person like to, that you're confident about how a business works how the economy works how the trends that are affecting a business work creates a lot of opportunity there's a lot of opportunity for writers who can hold that voice yeah and so that's what i found and then so i got into that kind of writing and then got into ghost writing in particular because ghost writing as i'm sure as you know you're pretending that you're that person they put their name at the end of it so it has that sort of technical side, but then it also has the color because you've got to present, you're creating, you're doing relationship building. So it's sort of, it's content marketing. So you, it goes out on email lists or on the web or becomes searchable content that then creates a relationship between a potential customer and the brand identity. And so you need to, you need to be able to give that brand identity some flavor and give people a, a way to connect with it. That's a creative exercise. And I enjoy that side of it. Mm. So I picked that up when I was over there because it was a great way to, to work online and, and travel. And yeah, I've been doing it ever since. So yeah, it's been a sweet little gig. That's really nice. And like, it's a lot of marketing too, right? You have to think you, mm. it's a, you're doing a lot of marketing with it. Yeah, I've picked up a lot of awareness of how, how sales funnels and all of that work just by being in that space and seeing the kind of stuff that the clients are asking for. Yeah, so that, that's been really interesting. Ah, oh, fantastic. This was the first part of the interview with Thomas Kelly. Make sure you're back next week for the second half. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We'll see you next time.